Well, folks, before we begin, um, I would say, uh, I should have mentioned this perhaps in the Lord's Day morning, um, but there are really three tools that are part of this class. Of course, your copies of God's Word, and then also the copies of the Covenant Renewal that are out on the back table. Uh, do make sure you have one um, on hand. The Covenant itself is not something we're going to be taking up um, just this evening, but the insert is something that we will be using rather heavily tonight. Um, this glossary is something that you'll find inside uh, the Covenant Renewal. Um, so if you don't have one, uh, now would be a great time to grab one. Um, and we'll be consulting that at various stages throughout the evening tonight. But before we really make a start, I want to lay some very basic foundations for how we can understand this course and what these four weeks are supposed to be about. And so first of all, I want to lay out the objectives. So perhaps the most obvious one is that we're engaged here to learn about, and also we're, all, we're here because we're also seeking to be encouraged in what we call the Ordinance of Corporate Religious Covenanting. Okay, so on a very basic level, we understand what we're doing. Here we're supposed to be learning about the Ordinance itself and also be encouraged to participate in it. And if that's its broadest sense, this course is also supposed to be preparing us as a congregation to engage in this. We're not thinking about this merely abstractly. We're thinking about this because at the end of this month, we as a congregation, God willing, will be engaging the very thing that we're learning about. And then finally, uh, this perhaps is maybe in the more narrow sense, most narrow objective, but that is really that this is something that's so seldom talked about. And because it's so seldom talked about, it lends itself either to misunderstanding or to kind of an objection out of hand. And so part of this course is to deal with that, to hopefully clarify any misconceptions that we might have about the scriptural account of what this duty is, and also answer some potential objections that folks raise to the duty itself. And so our method is, well, as you can probably tell, it's a lecture. Um, I'm not preaching this evening. I'm not preaching for a very basic reason. Um, as we said in our, our time this morning before corporate worship, uh, the purpose of a lecture is really to inform and the way that we're going to go about this process in these next four evenings is to think about the, the ordinance itself and primarily to, or really trying to understand the thing in itself and also to understand how we're supposed to go about these things. And why we're doing this as a lecture rather than a sermon is because the lecture is supposed to be the thing that, if you will, informs the conscience so that in the, under the preached word of God, then the conscience can be urged to work. If we put the cart before the horse, so to speak, very likely we're going to go about this process of thinking about covenanting, if we, if we go about this process of actually even engaging in covenanting without understanding carefully what's really, in, what's really involved, we're likely going to be doing various things, um, not doing the same thing together. And so I wanted to give you just a brief outline of how these classes are going to go. So for this evening, we're going to be talking about the first principles of covenanting. Uh, think of, it's an impressive way to put it, but we could say that this is the corporate ethical theology. It's, these are the ethical ideas that lie behind covenanting, but actually it doesn't quite get us to covenanting just yet. Then God willing, next Lord's Day evening, we'll be thinking about the character and obligation of covenanting, followed by the historic British covenants, an overview of their principles and also their contents. And then finally, the fourth Lord's Day in September, we'll re re review the character and obligation of covenant renewal as something additional to covenanting itself. 
So that's really an introduction to the entire course, why we're doing what we're doing, and the kind of direction it will be taking. But what I want us to do this evening is really step back for a moment and ask a very basic question. And this will help us understand, of course, why we're going about this in the form of a lecture rather than a sermon. I want to ask you, what are we doing? I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have already read this document. Most of you already know what covenant renewal is on a most superficial level, at least. Probably most of you, even if not all of you, know even the intricacies of the idea. So what are we doing? What really is this that we're about? And you may say, well, I left my home about an hour earlier so that you could tell me what we're doing. And that's fair enough. But let me ask it in a different way. So when a people come together to make something like this, there are two ways that you can think that they're doing that. So the first way, perhaps the way that's most common, is we can see individuals doing something together as individuals. And so we're various rational beings gathered together to do the same kind of thing together. That's one way to look at this. And I would say that's perhaps the most prevailing idea of what covenanting is, especially corporate religious covenanting. But another way to think about this, of course, is actually to think about this as one single body engaged in one single activity. Now, at first you might say, well, that seems to me like a distinction without a difference. Well, friend, I want you to know at the onset that those are two very different activities. Two very different activities on a fundamental level, and depending on how we answer those questions, whether we fall on this or that side, that will have vast implications for how we look at the activity itself. So that's what we need to understand. First of all, what is it that we're actually doing? And in order to understand that, friend, we even need to take another step backward. We need to ask the question, well, what really... Is this idea of corporation and corporateness, if you will. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about corporate religious covenanting. So, so what really is this idea of corporation? And I want to set before you just very briefly some basic propositions. And these are the propositions that we are going to focus on throughout the rest of this evening. So I'm going to explain to you what we mean by corporation, and then hopefully in the course of our time together, together we'll be able to walk through the various nuances that arise from these propositions and see them in light of scripture. So the first proposition is very basic, that a corporation is a single entity. It's a single entity formed of individuals. And as you can tell, the stress goes to the singleness of that entity. It's one body comprised of two or more individuals. When we're speaking about corporation, we're not talking about businesses, not necessarily. We're talking about any body that is formed of two or more people. Okay. So, what we're talking about here is forming one entity out of a vast number or a small number of other people. And there are different kinds, obviously, of these corporations. You can think about private corporations. You can think, obviously, about things like families. You can think about schools. Uh, you can even think about the kinds of artisan trade guilds or that kind of thing. Those are what we would consider private corporations because they consist of mostly the most local idea of society. But then, as you come to the other side, of course, those, there are those public corporations. We're thinking in these cases about churches, nations, international confederacies. These are corporations in which you're thinking about the broadest sense of society, the broadest sense of the, of the term corporation. And because we're dealing with corporate religious covenanting as a church, 
we're obviously thinking about the latter kind of corporation. We're thinking about public corporations, public bodies that are joining together for some stated purpose. But even if that's our focus, I want you to understand, at least this evening, the focus that we're going to have is not to say that these principles that we're looking at only apply to churches, nations, and international confederacies. There is obviously a sense, and we'll see some of it at least in a few minutes' time, that actually apply even to your most local corporations, such as families, schools, and so forth. But our focus, because we're talking about corporate religious covenanting in the context of the church, our focus is on those public corporations or public bodies. And I want to set before you two further propositions about its character. So what are these things? What are these entities or these bodies? And the first thing is, just to reiterate the definition, a corporation is simply a collection of individuals that are gathered together to form a single entity. Now, that's the definition we're working with. But here is a further principle that we add to that. In that case, whatever is done by the whole or a representative part of the body is said to be done of the entity. I think that's worth repeating. Whatever is done by the whole or a representative part of the body is said to be done by the whole body. Let me give you a few examples. This is something that we speak of actually quite freely without even thinking about it. If somebody says to you, a school perhaps approves of X, what do we mean by that? Well, we probably mean one of two things. We might mean that, well, this school board has voted in their board meeting to approve X policy. Or maybe we mean that this school comprised its teachers and students approve of X. But do you see what we've done? We've described the school as a single body engaged in a single activity. Let me give you even a more common one. If I said to you, the United States is at war, what do I mean? Well, the first level of meaning is probably just as simple as this. Politicians in the United States got together and declared war against some other, some other nation. They could also mean that there are U.S. troops engaged in combat. But it doesn't change the fact that I described the body as a body engaged in a single activity. Uh, just one further example, though we could keep on, uh, keep on this line of thought for quite some time. If somebody says, this church believes X, what do they mean? Well, they mean, well, at least most properly, that this church in its public profession of faith states X. It could also mean that teachers or believers within that church teach X. But it doesn't change the fact that the body is described as one body engaged in one activity. This is something we do without even thinking. But I want, I want to stretch that just a little further as we're thinking about corporations. You see, in each of those cases that I've just mentioned, the individual is eclipsed, or perhaps it would be better to say is subsumed under the activity of the whole body, of the whole corporation or entity. And so the idea behind this is, is that whenever I say the United States is at war, I don't necessarily mean that every single citizen of the United States is engaged in combat. Nor do I mean whenever I say the United States is at war that every single person agrees with the declaration of war in the United States. Instead, what I'm saying there is that a representative part of the United States actually stands in place for the whole, representing them and really acting in their place or stead. Now, if we understand that, that leads us to a second idea, a second major idea. 
if its character is such that it's truly collective and that what it does, what the body does, can be can describe the entire the entirety of the entity, we're now led to another idea. That not only are these bodies collective, they're also of a moral character. What I mean by that is because corporate actions are single acts of a single body, each of these corporate acts are either moral or immoral. And the analogy is very basic. So, folks, whenever you and I act in anything, if we do anything, we are always acting morally. There's no such thing as a morally neutral action by a human being. We are either doing good or we're doing evil, right? Well, applied to corporations, the same is necessarily true. If the corporate body is acting as one, such that it can be said to be one body engaged in one act, then its act must necessarily be evaluatable, if you will, by a moral code. And of course, we're thinking here, what is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments? The moral body and its actions can actually be, and are really, judged based on the moral law of God. A moral action can be good, and it can be evil. That's true of an individual and of a corporation. And what we're driving for here is this idea that a corporate entity is obliged to observe God's commands, and in its failure to do so, the body, the body, incurs guilt. Now, if you have your handout with you, the glossary, you'll notice here the very first term is the first one we're going to come across in our time together. It's the term corporate moral person. Now, in the glossary, you'll notice that the definition is given there. Allow me to just give you a brief summary of what's, what's the purpose. The purpose of this term is to tell us that in a corporation, from its most fundamental aspect of the family to its broadest aspect of international confederations, you have a true entity, rather than just a nominal entity or an entity in name only, you have a true entity formed of individuals such that actions performed by this body as a body are regarded as a single act and possessed of moral character. Really, that just summarizes everything that we've just said. A moral body is, or rather, a corporation is considered to be a truly moral body, which means we can call this, as we have in the term here, a corporate moral person. The reality is this language is far out of use, um, and it's largely out of use because the idea has been largely made extinct. But the principle is there, that whenever a corporation is formed together, it is formed as a morally responsible body such that it can incur corporate guilt, such that its actions as a body are judged according to the moral law. And obviously this leads us to our, our main point. So, scripturally speaking, do we see this? Is this how God looks at, for instance, human societies? Thinking on the grand scale. Is this how God looks on the lesser scale at families? Does God see us as a single body, acting in some sense as a body, and engaged in moral activity as this corporation? Before we actually answer that question, I want to re revisit just a thought here. When we think about corporations, I think our first idea is that a corporation is comprised, this collective body is comprised of everyone who is then alive, right? Well, I want you to think about this just for a moment. I'm going to quote here, from a man, so 17th century figure, who helps us think about this. A corporation 
anybody, whether a family, a nation, a church, or whatever you might have, is something that actually continues beyond the generation that it's formed, provided something is, something is present. Allow me to read the quote to you and I'll explain. He writes, As natural bodies continue the same true length of time, and by slow and silent degrees they receive a considerable alteration from the various accessions and desertions of their particles, so by the particular succession, succession rather, of individuals, the identity of the compound, or you could say your corporate person, is not diminished or obliterated, unless at one and the same time such a change would entirely take away the nature and constitution of that united body. Now, the fellow here, his name is Samuel Pufendorf, he was a political philosopher and a Lutheran. But here's his point. The point is that a corporation continues to exist so long as there is no fundamental change from one generation to another. I'll quote to you from no less than Merriam-Webster at this point. Though it's speaking about economic and legal corporations, I want you to notice what it adds. Merriam-Webster writes, A body formed and authorized by law, speaking of corporations, to act as a single person, although constituted by one or more persons, and legally endowed with various rights and duties, including the capacity of succession. And so when we're thinking about corporations, we're not thinking about particularly one generation, but we're thinking about anyone who would be part of this body that subsists substantially through the running agents as being part of this unified whole. And again, we come now back to that biblical question. Is this how scripture speaks of people and societies? I want to give you first one, one example, actually one that was alluded to this morning. If you go to Genesis 50:25, you'll find Joseph here taking an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. Here's the idea. Joseph is looking at death, and so he brings upon his brethren, perhaps, not his actual brethren, but his family, his, the descendants of his own brothers, this oath that they will bring his body, his bones, from Egypt and put them in Canaan when the Lord brings them out of Egypt. Simple enough. But I want you to notice how the scriptures continue to unfold this idea. In Exodus 13, we're told this, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry out my bones away hence with you. Now, my focus here this, e- this evening is not on the oath itself. My focus is on the body that we have in view here. And I'm not speaking about Joseph's either. The children of Israel, as it's in the book of Exodus. What's striking is, in Exodus 13.19, and this might be worth jotting down, in Exodus 13.19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. And note what the scriptures say. For he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, speaking of Joseph. Now, Moses and Joseph are centuries apart at this stage. And yet, according to the scriptures, the reason why Joseph, Joseph's bones are exhumed by Moses is because Moses believes that the same moral obligations that were put upon Joseph's brethren somehow continued to Moses' day. Now again, I'm not focusing on the oath. I'm focusing on the fact that Moses sees that there is a real ethical connection between Israel in his day and Israel in Joseph's day. Let me give you another example. Deuteronomy 4, words that we're quite familiar with. 
Moses speaking to the children of Israel, he says this, The Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. Rather straightforward, Moses is setting before the people of God the reality that they have heard the voice of God. They were at Sinai, on the plains of Horeb, and because they were there, the Lord had laid upon them this solemn obligation. Because they were present there, they must obey what God has commanded. The only thing about that text in Deuteronomy is that in Deuteronomy 1, verse 3, we're told this. That Moses' speech takes place in the 40th year, in the 11th month. In the 40th year, and the 11th month. I want you to think back just what I read here. What Moses is saying is, you were there at Sinai. When in fact, by this time, most of those who were there, to the exclusion only of really Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, were not. The majority of those to whom Moses addressed, by the way, the first person, uh, second person rather, were actually not even there. But yet Moses says that there is some sense, in some sense they were there at the foot of Sinai. In some sense he can say not only were they there, but because they were there in some sense, there is actually an aggravated, if you will, or increased obligation to obey what God has said. Again, the point here is not the covenant. We'll come to that, God willing, next Lord's Day. The point is this, that Moses treats another generation of people as though they were the same generation that had first fallen under this obligation. There's this idea of a continuity of body or corporation. Now, friend, this is something that pervades the scriptures. I want you to notice that this is not even tied to Israel alone. This is something that you'll find in families, nations, and even churches. And just briefly, friend, I want you to notice just one example from a family. The Lord says that he has sworn unto the house of Eli. He treats the whole house of Eli as a single entity with who, to whom he has sworn. And then he goes on to say, as he's going to pronounce judgment, he speaks of the iniquity, notice the singularity, of the house of Eli. The whole house, he says, has committed iniquity. One body engaged in one activity. This is the Lord's assessment of the issues. But now come the nations. Take for instance, take for instance Hosea 12. Ephraim said, I am become rich. I have found me out substance in all my labors. They shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. Ephraim said. Friend, Ephraim, of course, is referring there to a corporate body. The ten northern tribes. And yet Ephraim is described as a single body engaged in a single act. Again, you'll see this. Israel hath cast off that which is good. Israel, one entity, has cast it off. One action. Israel hath forgotten his maker. The same thing. Israel doth not know my people doth not consider. The same concept. Israel committed adultery. Judah saw. And really, friend, every time you have that indiscriminate usage of the children of Israel in Scripture... Doing something. It's the same idea. There is one body that is looked to, and that body is described as doing one thing, even though it's comprised of individuals. Now, friend, this is not just true of Israel, by the way. 
those who would like to restrict it only to those who are in covenant from Abraham or from Moses, I want you to notice that even in the scriptures themselves we're told that this is not the only this is not only true for Israel. Note what the prophets say. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud. Even his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath and his lies shall not be so. Speaking of Babylon, Babylon hath caused the slain of Israel to sin. And what I want you to notice, friend, in all of these texts, we're looking at nations in the context of national judgment. And that tells us here that God is looking at these nations as one body ethically. He's looking at them as one corporation engaged in one activity and so liable to a common judgment. In other words, friend, these are not figures of speech. God is going to deal with these nations, and He's going to deal with these nations, the Scripture says, because He sees the nations as a single body under collective guilt. Now, friend, this is even true in the New Testament of churches, and we could go at some considerable length here, but just think for a moment with me what you have in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. There you have the seven churches of Asia brought before the Lord and Christ standing in the middle of the golden candlesticks judging the churches. He makes assessments of each church, moral, ethical assessments of the church. And note what he says. The formula is so very simple. He says, the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And then he says this, I know thy works, singular. He makes no distinction here. He speaks of the church, even though it's a corporation comprised of individuals. And then he comes to the singular, I know thy works. There is a sense in which even as Christ looks at the churches, he sees them as one body engaged in one activity. Now we'll come back to that in just a few moments. But I want to lay that principle before you. In God's moral economy, societies, corporations actually do possess what we would call moral personhood. They stand as one body and are susceptible then to corporate guilt. Now, as we look at this, as we come to a close, we're thinking here about corporate entities that are morally responsible to God, which which means then that these corporate bodies also have corporate obligations. Now, the obligations for a society are the same as an individual in one sense. No society as a body is permitted to break any of God's laws. And then, of course, there are also particular duties. So, for the church, it is the preservation of the truth, worship, and discipline established by Christ. That is to be maintained by a body. That's a duty that falls upon the entirety of the church, in one sense. Nations, it's civil adjudication and conservation and the external maintenance of the church. Those are particular. But the point is, these bodies actually possess, as bodies, moral obligations from God. Now the question, this is perhaps the burning question. What do we, how do we understand corporate or actions committed by the body that are in view here? Are, are we thinking about everyone who is a constituent member of a corporation? All of their actions are attributed to the body? And the answer, of course, to that question is no. It's not the case that individual or private acts actually represent the entire body. There is some distinction that we make between private acts of body of members of a body and also the actual corporate acts of that entity. So first of all, what makes a corporate act a corporate act? We think first of all, in, the, in most general terms, that this can be said to be a corporate act if the act is pervasive through the constituent members of the body. And so if it's something that is generally committed by people who are part of this entity, 
we can say that this is a corporate act. Right? We can also say this, too. A corporate act is something that also takes place when a representative of the body does something on behalf of the body. A delegated person acting on behalf of the body is attributed, his acts are attributed to the whole entity. And finally, there's also permitted. There's what we call a permitted kind of activity in which acts that are encouraged or unhindered by the body are assumed and really made part of the character, the moral character of the entity itself. And so, friend, those are our three categories. These are what make corporate acts corporate acts. And this obviously in scripture is so intimately tied to the concept of corporate guilt. I want you to see how the scriptures use these kinds of categories. When he's speaking about the sins of Israel, or the sin of Israel, know what he says in Malachi 3.9. Ye are cursed with a curse, ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. If you come down to Ezekiel 20, verse 13, The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments. In both cases, you have God describing the whole body according to actions, sins, that are committed by the majority of the people. The majority, then, subsume the entire body. The general here describes the whole. But we also see this in the case of delegated authority. I want you to note this. In Hosea 9 and 15 and 16, you see this. The Lord says to Israel, I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. I will love them no more, says the Lord, and here's his explanation why. All their princes are revolters. The princes stand as representatives, delegates, and the Lord says that because of their revolting, the Lord will bring judgment upon the whole. I mean, friend, of course, this is something that you find all throughout the scriptures, but perhaps most notably in the case of Second Samuel 24. There you remember David numbers Israel. It's David who numbers Israel. The king. And only the king. We're going to see that in just a second. It's David who does it, but upon whom does the whole judgment fall? It actually falls on the entire nation. I mean, to the point where you hear David say this, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. In other words, David says, they had no part in this. It was simply I, their king, who had, who had fallen. I, their king, who had incurred the guilt. And yet the judgment falls on the whole body. We see this again. Although this could come up as well um, next words the evening. There was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Saul acting as a king, now mind you, a generation beforehand, really. What has taken place? Well, his actions have invited the wrath of God upon the whole nation. There is a sense in which, because the judge of all the earth does right, he sees the actions of these rulers, these representatives, as actually bringing corporate guilt upon the whole body. And then, friend, this is perhaps the one in Scripture that is most, most easy to find, and also the one that's most haunting. Whenever a nation or a society or a corporation permits profits from sin, even if 
they're not individually perpetrating it themselves. The Lord attributes the sin to the whole body. I want you to notice how the Lord does this with Eli. The Lord asks, Did I plainly appear under thy father, under the house of thy father, when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire unto the children of Israel? Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons before me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of my people Israel? Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm, and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall be no old man in thine house. Later on he says, speaking to Samuel about Eli, I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. Friend, do you see how the Lord deals with Eli according to the sins of his sons? He says, you have permitted these things. You have permitted these things. You have not hindered them. The Lord describes that as a kicking against his altar. But what does that do? That brings upon the whole house of Eli this judgment. Here, simply by permitting the sins of his sons, the whole house is somehow contracting corporate guilt. Now, friend, uh, if we had more time, it would be worthwhile to look at verses 23 and 25 in 1 Samuel 2 to show you that even that kind of rebuke the Lord regards as not really clearing one from corporate guilt. But the last case that I want to present to you is the one that's probably the most staggering and really sets the tone for how we're supposed to think about these things. It's the case of Achan in Joshua 7. Now, you know the context. Achan, in that case, of course, was only one actor who had taken from Jericho the thing that was a curse. He was only one in doing so. None else had done it. But you remember that after he had done so, the children of Israel went against the men of Ai, and they were defeated. Joshua falls before the Lord, asks the Lord what has happened, and the Lord tells him this. Well, first of all, the Lord in his word tells us this. The children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. That's striking, isn't it? The children of Israel, the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. One man, Achan, one family, he's even named in the second verse of Joshua 7. And yet the whole body is described as being those who committed this sin. In verse eight of Joshua, verse eleven of Joshua seven, the Lord continues, "Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen it assembled also, and they have put it among their own stuff." Now, friend, what do we make of that? Only one man in Joshua seven is named as those as the one who actually took. And yet the Lord twice tells us that he sees this as being committed by the whole of Israel. I think Matthew Paul is helpful here. What he really says in this case is you have the Lord looking at a people 
who were not careful enough in looking after one another. They were given a command, and because they were not careful enough to ensure that Achan had not taken of the accursed thing, God says that the whole people have fallen now under this corporate guilt. A friend, I want you to just note this. This is not something that's entirely um, missing in the New Testament either. When Paul talks to the church in Corinth, he says, I speak this to your shame, namely that permission of sin and that lack of discipline, to your shame as a whole body, as a whole church. Collective shame for the sin of one simply because it was permitted among the ranks. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 11, he writes, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. I think many of us assume that those who are those who are asleep, dead, those who are sickly, those who are weak, were only those who had actually committed the sin of sacrilege. Well, friend, in the scriptures, there's no reason to make that assumption. Our God will deal, for instance, with the whole children of Israel, will we'll slay even the men of Israel for the sin of Achan because of corporate guilt. And so we, don't, we need not make that assumption. But that does bring, obviously, an objection. What about that text that says, That soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. Well, friend, I think, first of all, we need to recognize the context of those verses. So I'm thinking of Ezekiel 18, verses, verse 20, and now I want you to look at verses 17 and 19. In Ezekiel 18, 17, the Lord says this, He that hath taken off his hand from the poor, that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes, he, says the Lord, shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. And then again, in verse 19, he goes on, When the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes and hath done them, he shall surely live. And so verse 20 of Ezekiel 18 is referring to those who have not continued in their father's sins. But I want you to compare just for a moment that text with what you have in the second commandment. There in Exodus 25, the Lord says this, I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now what is the meaning there? Is there a contradiction in terms? Well, there certainly isn't. Again, if I can so cite Calvin here. The point of, of Exodus 25 is to say this, that God is at liberty to punish the crimes of the fathers upon their children and descendants with the proviso that they too may be justly punished as being imitators of their fathers. In other words, friend, what you have in Ezekiel 18, what you have in Exodus 20 is this idea that a family, and by the way, we're thinking even nationally here, especially in the case of, of, Ex, of Ezekiel 18, that a nation can continue its guilt past a generation if in some sense the posterity continue in its sin. I mean, you do have that in Hosea, of course, where the Lord brings upon those who were after Jehu's reformation the days of the Balaam. Now, they were not worshippers of Balaam themselves, but were they idolaters? Well, they certainly were. They were still addicted to the altars at Dan and at Bethel. And so he says, in some sense, you have continued even in an aggravated sense, it continued in your father's guilt. Now friend, what we're supposed to see here is then that the sins of the fathers are not punished in the children who repent of them, as they do not continue in the same sins. But the Lord punishes descendants who persist in their father's sins, not only as the son's just punishment, but as an aggravation to the son's sin. And, and his continued, his continued his father's notorious rebellion. 
And that brings us, friend, actually to our covenant. Now, I've led you all throughout this, uh, through this exercise of seeing how we look at corporate entities through the scriptures to lead us to this one point. As you were thumbing through your copy of the covenant, I'm thinking here of section one where we have the acknowledgement of sins, you'll find these words. We desire to humble ourselves before God on account of the sins of the nations in which we live. Note that. We desire to humble ourselves before God on account of the sins of the nations in which we live. And then if you would, turn the page over. Look here at the second paragraph from the top. The sins of our nations are very great and call down the righteous judgment of Almighty God. We also humble ourselves before God on account of the sins of the churches and our nations. And I could go on, but friend, the point is in this text that as we are looking at the sins of the nations, we are required to humble ourselves for them. Why is that? Because, friend, the scriptures teach that as a body, as a corporate body, such as a nation is, it is possible for us to share in what we call corporate guilt. And the only way, friend, to clear ourselves of corporate guilt, aside from not participating in national sins ourselves, is to grieve over them. To confess them, and in whatever power or capacity the Lord has given us, to seek to prevent them. Now, friend, I want you to see this just briefly as we close. This is how the godly look at themselves. I want you to look at Ezra just for a moment. Ezra in Ezra 9 prays thus O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great, note the singularity, in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to his spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. Take Daniel along the same lines. Daniel is making his confession. He says, I'm making my confession to the Lord. Well, what's his confession? We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake by thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us, Confusion of faces as at this day. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing that they might not obey thy voice. Friend, we could go on. But note how these godly men, who are not even part of the generations to which they were referring, see themselves as somehow part of a body that had offended God. And they confess these things, grieve over these things before the Lord as though they were their own sins. We started with this, friend, because the reality is, as covenanters, it's not merely covenanting that's a distinctive of ours. But if you take up your glossary, it's also testimony bearing. The very last term on the page there, I won't read it for the sake of time, but the very last term tells us a little bit about this concept. You see, friend, not only Reformed Presbyterians, the Cedars as well, understood that in order for us to be clear of corporate guilt, 
We must not only abstain from the sins ourselves, but like Ezra, like Daniel, recognize that unless we are a people who grieve over these things, unless we confess them to the Lord, and unless we do all that we can to hinder the progression of these sins, then friend, we are genuinely and justly culpable for national calamity and sin. Now, that's simply an explanation of that first section of our covenant renewal. Why is it that we grieve over sins that we personally have not committed? But on a broader level, and this brings us back to where we began, this helps us understand what we're doing when we talk about covenant renewal. You see, we're not just individuals engaged in together in a simple act. We are, as we understand it to be, a single body that is responsible to God. A single moral person engaged in a single act. And friend, without that understanding, we will not be covenanters. Uh, we will be very good individualists, but we will not really come to the level of, of faithfulness that we have in our forebears, expressed in the scriptures, first of all, and then also through our covenanting forebears as well. Covenanting rests upon this crux in many ways. Do we really see ourselves as part of a body that's susceptible to collective corporate guilt? Do we see ourselves as part of a body that has corporate responsibilities and obligations? Or are we merely individuals? For the sake of time, we need to stop there. But God willing, next Lord's Day evening, we'll be taking up the issue of covenant itself. We'll be looking at, in those, in those times, at mostly the idea of the ordinance itself. But we'll also be coming back to this general principle of what does it mean for a body to enter into covenant with God. And so with those, those thoughts before us, let's return once again to the throne of grace as we prepare to worship our God together. Almighty and ever-blessed God, we come humbly before you, O Heavenly Father, recognizing that we are a people who are so dark in our understanding and so wayward in our wills. And so, Father, we come asking that you would be gracious by enlightening us even now. Lord, we long to know what our duty is. We long to know that which you would have us to do. And not because we could merit any righteousness before you, but because we would do that which is well-pleasing in your sight through Christ. And so, Father, we ask that even now, as we prepare for worship, Father, we pray that these thoughts would encourage us to set ourselves before you, humbly to seek your face, and to be a people who more and more long to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. Oh, Father, we ask that you would grant us guidance through these times, and that you would do so for Christ's sake, as we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.